Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Friday, May 6th. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's what we're following today. COVID has changed how we design our homes, just like the 1918 pandemic did. But first, today's one big thing. How do Americans really feel about abortion? That's a question we've wanted to answer since the leak of the Supreme Court's draft opinion on Roe v. Wade. So what does the data actually tell us about the opinions of Americans on Roe and on abortion rights? Public opinion has been very clear in that it's very complex. That's Lydia Saad, director of U.S. social research for Gallup. You have to look at probably 50 different questions to get a good synthesis of what Americans really are saying on abortion. Most recently, we found 58% opposed to overturning the decision. And that's largely consistent with the range of support we've seen on that all the way back to 1989. So broad support for Roe v. Wade, but also very broad support for restricting abortion in the second and third trimesters. Where the real friction comes into play is in the first trimester. With those top-line findings in mind, let's dig in with Margaret Taleb, Axios's managing editor for politics, who's worked with lots of polling on this issue. Hi, Margaret. Good morning, Nala. Margaret, in the last few days especially, I've been hearing a lot about how hard it is to poll accurately around abortion. We just heard that from Gallup. Let's start there. Why is this so hard? We know that most Americans, a majority of Americans, favor having abortion as a right, as a choice for women. And we see new polling out this week from Reuters and Ipsos that shows that about two-thirds of Americans, 63% of Americans, say that they would be likely to back a candidate who wants to pass a law that would protect all Americans' right to an abortion if that Roe decision is struck down, as we now expect it to be. So why is it so hard to understand? It's hard to understand for two reasons. One is that polling is only as good as the questions and people's willingness to answer them. And on an issue like abortion, people's emotions can run high, the questions can be confusing or misleading. That's part of the reason. The other reason is because this has all been mostly hypothetical until now. Yes, states have been restricting abortion rights, red states, over time. But as long as Roe versus Wade was the law of the land, and that's been the case for now a half a century, so think about that. Anyone who's, you know, 50 or younger has never known a time when abortion wasn't a federally protected right. So this has all been hypothetical. How will people answer a poll question when it's hypothetical might be very different than how would they would answer a question if it were suddenly real. And it is about to get real. Certainly, everyone's aware of how charged this issue is, and you could say politically charged would be not inaccurate. But what do we know about motivations, how much this issue actually causes people to vote for candidates? Democrats at this moment believe it gives them the advantage because when you are looking at the Democratic base, they are upset with Biden and with leaders in their own party over inflation, over crime. But now, finally, here's an issue that polls tell us base Democratic voters care about, protecting a woman's right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. So if Democrats can galvanize that to turn voters out to the polls, it could both potentially offset or reverse some of their problems in the midterms and help them to try to protect the majority they would need if they wanted to pass any abortion rights laws in Congress. But we know that the Democratic base voters 
who have felt the most passionately about protecting abortion rights have been liberal, college-educated women and Black women. Those also happen to be two of the blocks of voters who traditionally already were the most likely to turn out and vote for Democrats in midterm elections. Some of the other groups of voters that Democrats really have been struggling to excite and galvanize this year are young people. Young people are strongly motivated by this issue, polling tells us. But will it be enough to turn out to vote? Republicans in their early messaging have been talking much more about the leak and trying to create a kind of language structure to talk about this debate in which they're saying Democrats are the radical ones, we're the sensible ones. Okay, Margaret, so we have polling about the past. What do you want to know now about what Americans are thinking about the future? I do think as this moves from the hypothetical to the actual, we're going to see a tsunami of additional polling, focus grouping, political conversations, message testing around this. But I do think one thing is certain. A month ago, a week ago, we thought that the defining issues in the 2022 election were going to be inflation, crime, immigration, and COVID malaise, and maybe a little bit to do with Russia and the war in Ukraine. This changes everything. A huge, huge, huge part of the political conversation now this year is going to be about this uh, one defining issue and whether it alone is enough to turn people out to the polls who didn't care before and to change the course of the 2022 midterm elections. Exodus' managing editor for politics, Margaret Taleb. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Nyla. In a moment, we're back with how the pandemic is permanently changing home design. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. History has shown us how pandemics can influence literally how our homes are built, like the fact that all American bathrooms used to be carpeted. Axios chief correspondent Jennifer Kingston has the story of how COVID-19 is now changing home design. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Nyla. It's so funny you mentioned the bathrooms. I can't imagine them with anything other than tile. Right. So before we get into how home design is being affected by this current pandemic, how did we end up with tiled bathrooms because of the last pandemic? It's so funny that these changes in home design go back to the last pandemic of 1918. Back then, the innovation was that people started to build powder rooms, quote unquote, where you walked into somebody's house and you immediately wanted to wash your hands and get the outside off of you. And it was discovered then they began to learn more about germs. Powder rooms would have tile floors and uh, no draperies on the on the windows because those were thought to be able to harbor everything we wanted to keep out. And that's been a lasting innovation in home design. What are the main things people are looking for now in their homes after living through more than two years of this pandemic? People want larger homes with more rooms that they can specialize. They still want the open plan living area that was so popular before the pandemic. That hasn't changed. We still want a place where we can all hang out together. But now we want our own rooms where we can go work, study, play, be by ourselves. One of the big uh, watchwords here is flexibility. The rooms need to be flexible because whereas you used to spend 
evenings in your bedroom, you may be spending a good part of your day there. You may be exercising in your bedroom or working there or studying as well as sleeping and watching TV. Uh, there needs to be the ability to have different kinds of lighting daytime, nighttime, and a lot more ventilation as well because of what we know about the virus. Jennifer, we're also in this era where people are going back to the office. Many people are. Why do people want these changes to be permanent then? It's a good question because, as we know, hybrid work seems to have taken hold much more than anybody might have supposed. And so it's assumed that for the foreseeable future, we're going to want to work at home, even if we do go into the office now and then. Uh, We're not going back to the old days where there's such a big, bright line between our home life and our work or school life. So given the fact that these changes are effectively permanent. We want our homes to reflect that flexibility. Access's chief correspondent, Jennifer Kingston. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks, Nyla. Great to talk. And that's it for us this week. Axios Today was produced by Nuria Marquez-Martinez and Lydia McMullen-Laird. Our sound engineer is Alex Sugiara. Alexandra Boti is our senior producer. Sarah Kehalani Gu is Axios' editor-in-chief, and special thanks, as always, to Axios co-founder Mike Allen. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here on Monday. Once-in-a-century voter turnout, once-in-a-century pandemic, old technology, low budgets, and somehow democracy survives. What if the people with ideas to fix these problems actually had the resources to do it? Brought to you by TED, the Audacious Project is catalyzing more than $900 million to fund changemakers who want to rescue our democracy with ideas to solve humanity's most pressing challenges, from saving the planet to attacking legal barriers for refugees and more. Hear these ideas on the TED Talks Daily Podcast.